Good morning. Let's turn in our Bibles to the book of Matthew, chapter 13 this morning. As you know, we've been uh, switching off between our character studies and the studies of the parables of the Lord. So we're back on the parables this morning. Uh, there are seven in chapter 13 of Matthew. Some, some think there are eight, but I think there are seven. Uh, and we're going to be looking at parables number five and six this morning. That may sound like a lot, but they only count for three verses. Matthew 13, and we'll begin in verse 44. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and hid. And for joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has, and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking beautiful pearls who, when he had found one pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Let me say this is probably one of the most misunderstood passages in the Bible. Um, let me start with what I think most people think it means. I did a quick survey on the web, and I can tell you that one out of 12 got it right. Um, It's so tempting here in this parable to see ourselves as the man or the merchant and the treasure and the pearl as salvation or the Lord himself. Sounds good. And we have to be careful when we do uh, Bible exegesis, and you say, well, I've never done anything like that. Well, if you study the Bible, you've done exegesis. And uh, we need to do it carefully here. So let me say, we'll address the uh, the wrong interpretation first, which is uh, we're the seekers, we're the finders of the treasure, and the treasure is Jesus, our salvation. It's wrong, first of all, it's, it's wrong on three accounts. First of all, it's off doctrinally for four reasons. Uh, you notice in the first parable, the treasure is hidden in a field. Jesus is never said to be hidden or salvation for that matter. Probably most importantly, in both cases, the finder sells everything he has to acquire. We have nothing to sell with which to gain favor with God in any way. Thirdly, uh, salvation is only a free gift. Free, praise the Lord, huh? A free gift. Listen to what God says. Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come buy and eat. Yes, come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. You all know this one. For by grace you have been saved through faith in that, not of yourself. It is the what? Gift of God. We don't buy it. Not of works, lest anyone should boast. And another one you all know. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift or free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So that that's that's a major doctrine. And so if we're going around buying salvation or Jesus, we've got problems here. Finally, this idea of hiding the treasure. We don't hide Jesus after we find him. Go out and sell everything we have and then return and purchase him. So, 
Uh, let me just give you a clue. One of the best ways to interpret parables, besides uh, comparing it with other parables and other scripture, is uh, to say, is there something else in the Bible that reconciles, that, that matches that, uh, that parable? For example, is there anyone in the Bible who said to purchase something or someone? Well, it's God many times. And, and we'll see that. Now, uh, it's interesting. I've seen some people try to defend uh, us as the purchaser by saying, well, it's only f- the figurative of the value of Christ or salvation. Don't take it literally. The problem is, if, if these parables are really only meant to show the value of something, for example, salvation, well, then we can fall back on loosey-goosey teaching and say it's anything of value. Why does it have to be salvation? It could be uh, the Bible. It could be our inheritance. It could be our position in Christ. And we lapse into bad Bible study. That's not good. <clears throat> the second reason that uh, interpretation fails is because in all seven of the parables in this chapter we've already looked at i think uh, three or four of them remember what's the parable about the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of heaven must appear somewhere as a symbol in the parable now we're going to review the other one just real quick and you'll see in each case the kingdom of heaven is represented by something in the parable But let me just back up here and say, think about it. Why did Jesus tell these parables to begin with about the kingdom of heaven? We're so used to them. uh, I think we just accept them as their obvious truths. They weren't obvious at the time. Take your thinking back. Up until this point, the people of God had been a nation. The Jews. Israel. They had political boundaries. They were all from common stock, descendants of Abraham. Uh, The world is in for a big surprise because starting now, the church, the people of God, is suddenly not going to be a nation anymore. It's going to be a group of people, but it doesn't have political boundaries. Isn't it? That's interesting, huh? They had no idea this was going to happen. And Jesus is, is starting to get that point across. And so he refers to this uh, group of people who profess to know Jesus, be followers of him. He's their king, and therefore they're in the kingdom. Uh, he describes them as a, a people, a, a members of a kingdom. The interesting thing about this kingdom is, everybody who says there is, they're, they're in the kingdom are not in the kingdom. We've already talked about that on, on the previous parables. Think about it. In the world, uh, last count, it's, it's growing now, but it was six billion. You realize out of the six billion people in the world, three, or pardon me, one third, two billion, say they're Christian. You believe that? You think two billion out of six billion are going to heaven? Oh, I'm sorry. But uh, it's a much smaller number than that. Let's take out, for example, uh, all of the groups that teach that you're saved by works. (laughs) 
that accounts for most of them. And then you've got all the cults that deny the deity of Christ. And then you've got a huge portion that teaches feely good Christianity. You can have Jesus in your sin too. Love the world and love God, which violates 1 John chapter 2, by the way. You can't love both. God says that. We, just right off the top, take those out. The point is, and Jesus himself said it, out of this big sphere, if you will, of profession, of people who say they're Christians, there's this little tiny amount in the middle that really are followers of his who when they die are going to see him face to face forever the others are going to see him face to face at the great white throne but that's the last time so you understand the kingdom of heaven in its loosest sense in these is everybody that says they're a christian right now about a third of the world but within that big circle there's a smaller circle of people who really are christians by the way it would be so cool uh, to have some kind of special glasses and be able to look around at people and see if they're indwelt by the Holy Spirit or not. You know, you know, angels can do that. First of all, angels are present right here with us. We know that from Scripture. It talks about, where, uh, for example, women wearing a head covering is a testimony to the angels. In Ephesians, God says that the church is a testimony to the manifold witness of God to the uh, occupants of principalities of uh, heavenly places. They're watching and they can see. An angel is a spirit being. God is spirit. They know when God is around and he knows the individuals uh, who, who have the Holy Spirit in them. But people, we don't have that capability. Somebody says, I'm a Christian. You can't look inside and see if they really are or not. But God knows. And the angels can see. So you understand we got these two circles, big circle. Everybody says they're a Christian inside little circle of those that really know God or indwelt by the Holy Spirit are saved by the blood of Christ. Right. That shouldn't be new to you. We're used to that, but it was a new concept. That's why Jesus told these parables. That's why he told the parable of the sower. He goes out and scatters seed and out of the uh, four, only one of them yields a true christian the other three fail they say they're christians but they're not they either die out because of persecution or love of the world he says and then the the other one uh the bird snatched up the seed before it even took root that's why jesus is teaching these parables he's he's getting uh, the disciples and even in the multitudes who might get saved to understand there's something new now not the jews there's a new kingdom here and it doesn't have political boundaries. It's followers of Christ. And there are going to be a lot of them who say they are who are not. So, in all of the parables in this, in this uh, section, in this chapter, the kingdom of heaven, either in its outer form of those who say they're Christians, or its inner form, is represented by something in the parable. For example, in the first parable, the parable of the sower, the... Seeds that fall on the thorny ground, the seeds that fall on the rocky ground, and uh, the seeds that are snatched up represent the sphere of profession. Those who say they're Christians but are not. The only ones in that uh, parable who really know the Lord and are in that inner sphere are the seeds that fell on the good soil. You understand that? Yeah? Okay. 
Um, the uh, second parable, this is an easy one. The tares among the wheat, right? Remember? All right, which hand has the marble in it there? Okay, now there's a tough one. The tares are the ones who profess, but who don't know Christ. They're planted by the devil. God says that. But they're in the kingdom of heaven. And the wheat is true believers. Okay? Um, by the way, it's interesting. The parables in this chapter come in pairs. The first two talk about true and false professors. Those who, who say they're uh, Christians or are not, and those who say they are, and they really are. The uh, next two, the mustard seed and the leaven, both talk about a, a, a false gospel, and they're talking about the outer circle. The mustard seed, you know, Jesus says it's the smallest of seeds, and this particular mustard seed grows into a tree. And that sounds wonderful. In fact, the same guys who misinterpret this parable go out and say, oh, isn't that wonderful? The mustard seed grows and Christianity spreads throughout the world until just about everybody's a Christian. Isn't that good? That's what that parable's teaching. That's not what Jesus is teaching there. He's saying it's unnatural growth. There's a false gospel. People say they're, they're Christians, but they're not. And the same thing with the leaven. The, uh, the leaven causes the meal to, to, uh, to expand. And uh, maybe some of you guys don't know this, but I think most of the wives do. I know about it because my wife will leave me a note when she goes to bed. says, go in and punch down the bread. And I go in and uh, the refrigerator out on the counter and here's this big bowl with this big pile of uh, dough and I've got to push that stuff down. That's what leaven does. And leaven in the scriptures is uh, almost always a picture of evil. So that's unnatural growth again. And the big the big loaf again represents the the outer, the false kingdom of God. Okay. Uh, we, it's interesting, we have a clue as to the symbolism in the one, ones we're looking at this morning. Back in verse 37, Jesus explains to the disciples the wheat and the tares. And he says this, He who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world. Now, this isn't always true, but sometimes we can use the symbols in one parable and apply it to another. In this case, it works that the field is the world. We're going to see that. And that again, the man is the Lord. Okay. In fact, uh, let me go ahead and, and uh, spill the beans here. The picture here in these parables, the, the thing of value, whether it's the pearl or the treasure, is the true church. And the purchaser who sells everything he has is the Lord himself. And that fits with the rest of Scripture, besides following all the other rules we talked about in the parables. In this particular parable, something represents uh, the kingdom of God. In this case, the pearl and the treasure represent the true profession, true believers. By the way, I think it's interesting that when Jesus now talks about true believers, the church, he's talking to the disciples only. In verse 36, look what it says. Then Jesus sent the multitudes away and went into the house and his disciples came to him saying, explain to us the parable. So what's interesting, the first four were for general consumption about the big sphere. 
But when he talks about the, the inner group, the true believers, he's now talking to true believers, except for one, Judas, of course. So, summary. I hope you followed that. The summary is this. Here, Jesus is teaching us about the value of God's own people to himself, the value he places on him, and how far he was willing to go to acquire us. Okay, now we'll take a closer look. Verse 44, the first one, the field and the treasure. Uh, the field represents the world. And before I say anything, I'll just say we'll, we'll talk about that one later. The treasure, the church, comes from out of the field. And Jesus said, he says, because you're not of the world, I chose you out of the world. Therefore, the world hates you. The church comes out of the world. Uh, next, it says he hid the treasure. How did God hide the church? Well, he does it. He does it two ways. First of all, the church itself has been hidden in time since before creation. It says about uh, true believers that he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Nobody knew that, by the way. You know, he didn't post a, uh, uh, what, do you, what do you call it, a roster up in heaven, you know, for the angels to go and read it. Nobody knew this. It's a mystery. That's what it says in the rest of Scripture. A mystery is something that's hidden by God until it's revealed by him. So all this time, before he even created the world, He had chosen you, if you're a believer, and me to be his own. We were chosen in Christ. We were hidden all that time. Ephesians 3 puts it this way. Talking about the church. uh, Paul talks about the ministry he has. To make all see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God. Hidden who created all things through Jesus Christ to the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. Okay, well, the church is hidden in space as well, not just time. What I mean is hidden in the world. Jesus says that we're in the world, but we're not of it. It's really strange, you know. You ask the average guy on the street, you know, who are Christians? Well, that's somebody, if you give them a Gallup poll and you put down religion and they write Christian. That's who the Christians are. It's that big circle. That's what the world thinks of as Christians. The two billion people. It's hard to explain to someone, you know. Look, the vast majority of those people don't really know Jesus. Just a, a handful of them do. People don't understand that. What's the difference? What can be? They all go to church. They all talk about Jesus. You you can't understand that really until you get saved. And then you understand. We're not talking about just adhering to some intellectual doctrines. We're talking about a work of God in the life of a person who drastically changes, creates a new person. That's, That's fantastic. We're hidden. Okay, uh, now we should get excited about this parable, you know. Uh, it reminds me so much of the parables in Luke about um, Jesus talking about the joy of God when a sinner repents. You know, there are three of them. 
the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the prodigal son. He uses that word here. Jesus is telling a story about a guy. Can you imagine? You go out and you're, you, you're walking in a field. I don't know, maybe you're duck hunting or something, you know. And you walk along and you trip. And there's a corner of a treasure chest sticking up, you know. And, and you're able to pry it open. You look inside. And here's this king's ransom inside, you know. And so probably, uh, I don't know how honestly you do this, but you go to the owner and you'd say, hey, how much do you want for that worthless uh, piece of land out there? You know. We'll, we'll, we'll ignore the illegal aspects of the thing for the moment. And just think about how excited you'd be, you know? Millions of dollars hidden out there. You know, you write the guy a check for a couple of thousand. And you're, and you're a millionaire. The point is Jesus is trying to ex- express, to show us the joy that God has in acquiring His people that's incredible. I don't know why he has joy on acquiring me. Do you? No, I don't mean me. I mean you. <laughs> Both of them. Isn't that great? I mean, he, he should have want nothing to do with us. And yet it says, for joy over it, he goes. I love that. He rejoices over his people. As flawed and sinful as we are. Because we're in Christ now and we have an infinite value to him. As I said, this this joy idea, it's it's so beautiful. Uh, Jesus talks about it so much and it just warms my heart. Listen to uh, what he says in the parables. I'll just I'll just read them here in Luke about the same idea of the joy that God has. When a sinner repents, Jesus says, what man of you? Having a hundred sheep, if he loses one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the wilderness and go after the one which is lost until he finds it. And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me. He's excited. For I have found my sheep which was lost. I say to you that likewise, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 just persons who need no repentance. Then he tells this one. Or what woman having 10 silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp, sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it. And when she has found it, she calls her friends and neighbors together, saying, rejoice with me, for I have found the peace which I lost. Likewise, I say to you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. I love the way he says it, joy in the presence of the angels. It sounds like what he's saying there, God is the one that's doing the rejoicing. And of course, most poignant of all is the one that's closest to home, the prodigal son, the father uh, who basically loses his son. But then he finds him. And the joy there is is just... uh, unspeakable the father said to his servants when the son comes back bring out the best robe and put it on him put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet and bring the fatted calf here and kill it and let us eat and be merry for this my son was dead and is alive again he was lost and now he is found isn't that beautiful it's picturing the heart of god and his love for his people we should never lose our sense of wonder and amazement at the love that god has for us Well, 
Next, uh, I said we were going to talk about the field itself in a moment. Now we'll talk about it because it's at the end. It's very interesting. I don't know if you noticed this. It says he sells all that he has and he buys that field. Now, is the field worth anything? No, it's the treasure. Now, Jesus deliberately told this parable this way, where God buys a lot more than just the treasure. He just as easily could have just, like in the next one with the pearl, talked about a treasure, he finds it and goes out and buy it. Why does he say that he bought the whole field? Now, you have to be careful. You don't want to build a doctrine on parables. But when it uh, matches the rest of Scripture, then you can say, yeah, that reinforces a doctrine that's already true. And the doctrine I'm talking about here is unlimited atonement. There are some who try to teach that Jesus only died for the church, the elect, they call it. Jesus didn't die for the whole world. You ever heard that before? It's called limited atonement. Here would have been the chance, if that were true, Jesus would have, would have said he went out and bought the treasure. But he bought the field. What does ever fit with John 3.16? God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him. 1 John 2.2 For he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for our sins only, but for the sins of the whole world. Hebrews 2, that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone, not just the church. 2 Corinthians 5, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. There's an incredible verse in 2 Peter. 2 Peter and Jude are the books about false teachers or false prophets. And in chapter 2 of 2 Peter, He says uh, a very interesting thing. Talking about these false prophets, he says that these guys even deny the Lord who bought them. Isn't that interesting? You see, I I remember talking to a fellow who uh, believed in limited atonement. And uh, he was trying to say what 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 a good thing, what a good thing that doctrine is. And I said, well, it's economical. But that doesn't make it right. The death of Christ is not economical. Do you realize that? He wasted his death for most of the people. You realize God doubly owns every single person, first by creation and the second by purchasing them on the cross. Every single person, everyone, including those false teachers in Second Peter 2. How do I know that? The Bible says it. Even denying the Lord who bought them. Doubly owned. As a believer, I, I'll tell you, I'm happy. That's wonderful. Can you imagine what it's going to be like as an unsaved person to face Jesus on the great white throne, knowing that he owns you twice over and you've denied it your whole life? So he buys the field. Unlimited atonement that he might acquire the treasure. Okay, uh, we're going to talk about that selling all he had in, in a moment because it occurs in both of the parables. But uh, <clears throat> why the second parable? Again, they come in pairs, remember. The uh, first two we talked about, then the next two. This is the third grouping of two. 
both talking about the value of God's people to himself. Well, let's look at what's different about the second one, and we might be able to get some insights. The first one is, uh, if we had time, I'd ask you, but I'm just going to go ahead and save you some time and tell you what the difference is. Uh, In the first one, the man finds the treasure. He was out duck hunting and he tripped over it. Okay? In the second one, it says very plainly that he was seeking, he was looking for treasure, pearls in particular. So, Jesus is teaching us a little bit more in the second one here. You see, the Lord is the great seeker, capital S. We are not. I know some people really like to take a lot of credit for coming to Christ, you know. Sorry. I tell you, if it hadn't been God drawing me to himself, I never would have gotten saved. I don't know about you. God says that. He says in uh, Romans 3, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understands. There is none that seeks after God. Zero. Well, how come people get saved? Because God draws them. He works on their heart. Sometimes it takes 50. Sometimes it takes 70 years to work on a heart. I remember... uh a hardened old barber over at Fairhaven Bible Chapel years and years ago. Uh, a lot of you have heard of the intern program, you know, where they train young men to serve the Lord and so on. And the interns would often go to this guy's shop to get a haircut, and he was so foul-mouthed. Uh, but they kept witnessing to him. And this guy got saved. He was in his 70s. Old guy. And I'll tell you, he just he just changed 180 degrees. And he was there every Sunday night at breaking the bread. And every Sunday night, this old crusty man who, who hated God and the things of God would get up. And before he was done talking and worshiping, that's all he did, just worship the Lord. He would be weeping and crying and saying, I wish I could go to heaven right now. And you, you, your heart would just melt to hear this guy worship the Lord. He was a treasure. God sought that man. Uh, I remember we prayed for that guy week after week. And I know many of us thought, why are we praying for this guy? This guy's not going to get saved. You see, but God sought him out. God didn't give up on this guy. God's the seeker. We already read the parable of the lost coin. Now, you know, today, if you lose a coin, yeah, fine. You know, it's not paper. I'm not going to worry about it. You know, penny and nickel. In those days, a coin was a valuable thing. They didn't have paper money. And the lost sheep. In both cases, again, picturing God as the seeker. I love uh, the man who was born blind, whom Jesus healed in John chapter 9. You remember after he, he had his sight restored and the Pharisees come and grill and they said, who did this to you? What's he like? He's a sinner. Come on, say it. He's a sinner. And I love that guy, you know. He wasn't trained in the in the Bible or anything. He just said, all I know is once I was blind and now I see. Why are you asking me all these questions? You want to be his disciple too? (laughs) This guy's great. Well, the Pharisees can't have a guy like that around. So you remember what they did? They excommunicated him. They kicked him out of the synagogue. You can just see this guy, you know, something great happened and then something terrible. First, he gets his sight back and now he's kicked out of the synagogue. His friends have abandoned him. And he's out wandering over the street somewhere. And it says, Jesus heard that he was cast out. And when he found him, he asked him, do you believe in the, in the Son of God? And I could just see Jesus inquiring 
looking around, asking until he finds the man to restore him. The seeker. The other different thing about the second parable is, if you noticed, in the first case, it's a treasure, which to them and to us tends to indicate lots of, you know, pieces. You know, the classic, right, is the is the pirate chest, you know, right? You know, bang, you shoot it open, you open it up, and here's all these pearl necklaces and crowns and swords, right? Okay, you know, doubloons, all that good stuff. Whereas the second one, it's a single item. It's a pearl, just one, one pearl. And Jesus is teaching us there that uh, this, the kingdom of God in its true sense, the church is many, but it's also one. And we have that all over scripture. And it speaks of the preciousness of the church, not just the individuals, but the church as a whole to himself. Elsewhere, we're called his bride. What a beautiful picture. Uh, I can't put it better than the Lord himself. Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. That he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word. That he might present her to himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing. But that she should be holy and without blemish. Isn't that a beautiful picture? Jesus is preparing us. You know, I don't know how pretty we look right now. But when Jesus is done with this, we're going to be beautiful. You know, perfect, holy. Righteous, ready to be presented to the Son of God. Man, that's great. But you are a chosen generation, Peter writes, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people. I think the old King James says his own peculiar people. I like that. That you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Okay, the last thing we learn from these parables I said uh, we would put it off. It's in both the parables, and it just staggers me when I read it. Talking about the Lord, it says he went and sold all that he had and bought it. He sold all that he had. Imagine a person doing that, a person, you know, some guy that finds a pearl or a, or a treasure, and he, and he literally sells everything he has because he knows what he's going to get is worth more than that. You know, a, a guy would not do that. He would make sure that what he's going to acquire is at least worth what uh, he's, he's selling, which is everything. In fact, it has to be more because of all the trouble you've got to go to. So this thing would be pretty valuable. But we're talking about us. That's what he's getting out of this deal, you know. And if you think about it, <clears throat> what could God spend that would cost him? Uh, immediately we think in terms of money, you know, or gold or silver. But the, the problem is God can speak. I don't care what it is. And without effort, it exists. God speaks and there it is. That's what he does in Genesis chapter one. Let there be whatever it is. Light, you know, sea animals, land animals, plants, trees. He just speaks and there it is. It doesn't cost him a thing. So he can't sell everything he has in that sense. The only thing of intrinsic value that it would really cost God to give would be himself. That's it. And that, of course, as you know, is what he did. That's incredible. The cost 
of purchasing us is measured in the infinite suffering he endured for our sins. That's the cost. Listen to the verses that define this phrase, selling all that he had. First one, we've already quoted it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For when we were still without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. But God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Paul says it well, the life which I now live in the in the flesh, I live by the faith in the son of God who loved me and gave himself. He sold all that he had for me. Paul admonishes the Ephesian elders in uh, Acts to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. First Peter, you were not redeemed, bought, purchased with corruptible things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without spot and without blemish. Talk about selling all you have. Listen to this. For you know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, who, though he was rich, yet for your sakes, he became poor. You know, Jesus was the poorest man that ever lived. He he owned nothing except the, the clothes on his back. But we're not just talking about financial poverty. When he was on the cross, he bore the sins of the whole world. What was it like for this one to have all the sins in his account? All the sins of the world. Can you imagine? No wonder he says prophetically in Psalm 22, I am a worm and no man. Although he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor. He sold all that he had. That we through his poverty (laughs) might become rich. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. We can't stop there. Wherefore, God has highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. In light of all of this, I don't blame God for reminding us that we don't belong to ourselves. He says in 1 Corinthians 6, What? Do you not know that you're not your own? You have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and your spirit, which are God's. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we'll never understand your great love for us. We don't question it. We thank you for it. And in light of what it cost you to buy us, sinners of no value, and exalt us to heaven with yourself, Lord, we we have to say that uh, we're happy to belong to you now. And we just pray that we might 
take that admonishment from 1 Corinthians 6 and recognize we're not our own anymore. We've been purchased. You doubly own us. We pray we might live like that. We ask it in your name. Amen.